0: Those of us who are kind of eternal GMs, are we too hung up with player agency? Is that really what your table wants? And if it is, yeah, great, you know, Um, but if it isn't and people want more pointers or they at least want some kind of guidance about, you know, what breadcrumbs to follow, then is that such a bad thing? Bring me back. Give me a plus one to attack. Whoa, oh oh, I wanna come back to the dice. Whoa, oh, 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 I think I need some good advice. I need a roleplay rescue. Oh yeah. I need a rope rescue. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Hello Rescuers! My name is Che Webster and you're listening to Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our passion for tabletop role-playing games. Today is the second of two extended conversations I've shared with some gaming friends over the course of a week, focusing on answering some really practical questions around the barriers I have long experienced in running consistent campaigns. These conversations were largely unplanned and are, well, pretty much that – me and a friend hopping online to talk and discuss some key ideas the second conversation is with simon williams a british artist and illustrator as well as being the creator of the legend of the bones podcast a hybrid solo old school dungeons and dragons actual play and dark fantasy audio drama simon asks an important question do our players really want agency this is season 12 episode 19 player agency with Simon Williams. Hi Simon, how you doing? Hi Jay, how are you doing? I'm good. It's Friday night. Hooray! Hooray! It's Friday night, and um, yeah, I
0: will have a cup of tea. I'm uh, I'm being very British, having my cup of tea.
1: Yeah, in in your in your Michael Moorcock cup. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I'm I particularly like this the novel that this image is from uh anyone who knows Michael with more copy if i say stormbringer they'll know the the cover art from stormbringer and um it's a fantastic book completely nihilistic and um dark and uh just the kind of thing you need to cheer up on a on a, a winter's evening
1: <laughs> okay just for listeners purposes you've thrown a bunch of things at me and um the one that poked out of the list on a question that was on the list of things that sort of poked out a little bit to me was, how much agency do players really want?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's an interesting question. Um, and my impression is probably way less than the GM wants to give them.
0: I I, I would totally agree with that. And, and, and the reason I put it on that email to you was because with my live table, I have experienced situations whereby I've almost, I pre-warned, them and said this is now much more of a sandbox and you can go and do whatever you like here are a whole load of locations over to you and they kind of don't know what to do it's almost like they've they've been conditioned to wanting the railroad mm. or wanting the the kind of linear adventure yeah and um I, and it struck me that you know our those of us who are kind of eternal GMs, are we too hung up with player agency? Is that really what your table wants? And if it is, yeah, great, you know. Um, but if it isn't and people want more pointers or they at least want some kind of guidance about, you know, what breadcrumbs to follow, then is that such a bad thing? Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of why I put it on there. and uh, And I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I, I want I want my my games to be a sandbox. I want I want the players to have agency, but am I forcing my desire upon them? It's a good question.
1: Uh, there's a couple of things that popped into mind around it. Um, the first is that one of the signs of a of the Alexandrian calls abused gamer syndrome is the inability to handle um, open sandboxy and agency driven games. Uh, essentially people you know people who've been raised on the railroad spend their entire time looking for the rails right like, when i was a player years and years ago I became a little bit of a victim of this the other thing where you know you know that a GM is going to punish you if you don't like do what they said you do anyway somehow that how subtle and kind they are about it and gentle they are about it you know like in the end you sort of just roll your eyes and go with it right Uh, And I still find this a lot today, especially with like a lot of one-shot games or uh, even at um, conventions actually and stuff like that. There's a sort of uh, uh, the unspoken rule and understanding seems to be one of like a good player turns up and does what is clearly expected of them at the table so everyone can have a good game together. And and then to to my mind, that's like really boring. Uh, As a player, you know, most of the time I'm like, I don't... I, I don't know I, I'm kind of I you go along with things but I I always feel like when do I get to make this decisions but um yeah I find it interesting that Alexandria in terms it like a part of a clue in abused gamer syndrome which is an interesting thing uh,
0: and I want I wonder whether or not that's if I if I think back to you know when I started playing role-playing games you, you know almost any rule book you bought mm-hmm. would always have a starting scenario within that mm-hmm. and and it that's almost setting that expectation up front that here Mm -hmm. is a scenario, here is a linear plot that you will follow to get through it. I mean, some of those starting adventures are even solo adventures, Mm -hmm. you know, which is even more uh, railroady. And I I wonder, I wonder whether, you know, the industry has kind of been built itself on, on, on railroading players, because actually what does the industry want to do after they publish a rule book? They publish pre-written modules pre-written adventures because they want those to sell it's a business model isn't it Mm -hmm. and what do the pre-written written written models do well they are railroads isn't you can't escape it they are always a railroad so our whole industry has been built up on this concept of players shouldn't really have that much agency
1: yeah it's interesting as well i mean i think about paizo and i know that paizo does like the adventure paths you know um and The designers of those originally, way back, I can't remember the exact quotation, but I'm boldly paraphrasing. They sort of said, look, there's basically the people who buy these are people who want to read. They want to read a module and it's going to be entertaining as a reading thing. Um, Then probably won't play them, but it's got to have this really good, strong kind of plotted sort of sense to it as you sort of work your way through it. And then, of course, if it's played, then it being a path tells you kind of what you need to know, really, doesn't it? That, That it's essentially going to have this kind of linearity to it um But then again, you know, like flipping that all around, you know, there's a lot to be said. Well, some people will say there's a lot to be said for, you know, if you're on a railroad, well, if it's like, a, if it's flat, that's probably not a great experience. But, you know, if it's a roller coaster, then that can be really exciting, right? Indeed. You know, that's generally the argument given for like, well, you know, people love it, really. Get on the train, But what are we talking about here? Because actually, it's all about agency, right? And, and, I, I always think that the best uh, take on this was probably from the angry GM uh and his three tiers of agency thing. It's probably just worth kind of talking about that a bit and what agency is. Because you know, for me, like railroading is when you take agency away, right? Yeah, agreed. But there are sort of there are layers of it. So the bottom layer is like I I get to choose how to deal with the situation I'm in. Um so you know. I mean, I don't know, every situation I'm in, give me a role-playing situation. Um, Well, I'm in in a room, there's three exits. Right, okay. And I get to choose the door, right? Um, And when I'm in the room, I get to choose what I do in the room, you know? So I'm going to poke over there in a corner and see if there's anything. And and that's kind of layer one. Layer two is like I get to choose situations I put myself into. So in a traditional dungeon game, I mean, that's sort of already there because – a lot of the time you choose which door you want to go to which situation you want to go to next and all the rest of it um and if it's being done in the traditional way that that say the dungeon if we go right back to the beginning of the hobby that, that's been designed beforehand and then there are probably going to be clues about what's behind different doors or down different exits if it's been done in any kind of decent way and you know that sort of that's sort of fine, right? That I get to choose the situation I get into. And I think most players want those first two levels of agency. They want they want to be able to resolve the situation they're in and they want to be able to choose the next one to get into. But third tier agency is deciding what the goal is. Um, like what is the point of what we're doing. Um, and it seems to me that's where players don't necessarily know how to handle that or what to do with that. Uh, and to give that an example, the amount of times I've started a campaign where players go, yeah, I'd love to play in a sandbox, chat. it's great. Um, can you just make sure there are, uh, like, some hooks for us to start us off, like some pointers, things that we could go and do before we start? And, and i immediately go, right, that's tier three agency gone. Um, you're telling me you want me to set some goals. And, you know, and, and what I try and do is set up multiple goals, so at least they have that tier three agency, which one do you want to go for then? Um but a lot of the time, even players, they are like, you know. Just tell us what you want to do first.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 that dungeon construct, that that you know the the archetypal game structure of the dungeon crawl, uh, it, in a way, will always be some kind of railroad because ultimately, there's normally an an end game, isn't there? There's an end boss, a big bad, some some particular treasure or loot that's going to be found or or whatever it is. Mm. The goal of the dungeon is predetermined. It's very rare that you have multiple goals within a dungeon. Mm. So that that inherent game structure that that was the beginning of the hobby lends itself not to have that level three of player
1: agency. It depends. I mean, if you're playing the old mega dungeon, you go right back to the beginning and you have the mega dungeon concept. You're going to have multiple things going on, lots of factions going. Essentially, it's a big sandbox, but underground, right? Yeah. So you know, if we had to take that with kind of structure. And I think like that, you have to remember, that's where the hobby started, right? So that hobby started hmm. with these, the idea was that, you know, uh, D&D 1974 tells you, have at least six levels set up before you start, and as many as dozen, and it's essentially only endless, and you can keep explaining it forever and ever and ever, and then players go down and have their runs each time. Um, and you have to bear in mind that back then, you know, characters, groups were kind of big, and characters were very, very, very fragile. And you probably have more than one character. Uh, and you know, it's a whole kind of different way of playing to how it sort of evolved over time. Hmm. If, we, if we fast forward forward, I mean I had a conversation in a recent a recent interview with John Four. We we're talking about setting a campaign. And one of the words that kept coming up a lot, rightly or wrongly, is is story. So I create a story. And we were talking about creating um using five room adventures creating stories um and essentially he was pointing out well all stories are essentially linear they they have like beginning a middle and an end you know and what we were talking about is how to offer players these like sort of mini adventures that sort of these little trails through your campaign world you know like i don't know he was talking about to have a magic some magic armor that you can find somewhere so there's this sequence of of scenes and you could work your way through that gets you to that um, and then there may well be those those across crisscrossing with other things that you can get involved in. So the whole thing's quite a matrix of options for the players, and quite sandboxy. But ultimately, you know, it's really important these days. Is what we're told all the time is that it has a really strong story. You know, um, and when I think back to the '90s, certainly when this started to become like the really dominant theme i'm thinking of like world of darkness storyteller yeah. system you know vampire and all of that lot are very much just sort of banging on about yeah it's all that story and narrative and you know you have really good um satisfying stories and that's when railroading really took off um because it became right i'm going to put you through a story a plotted sequence of things that are going to happen and like way betide the to play who tries to like deviate from that very much because that's going to screw up my story plotting and the pacing and you know all of those concerns you know I probably sound quite quite negative about that at the moment but it's because my experience of, a lot of those games was like being basically moved from scene to scene and often not being able to choose really what was coming next
0: yeah and and you know th- I wonder whether there's this part of our kind of modern psyche where we've grown up on on, on linear story-built media, mm. you know, books, TV, film, where we are effectively passengers observing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to break out of that, that mode. But role-playing games are a completely different medium. Mm-hmm. And I've got no problem with story, providing story is emergent mm-hmm. and procedurally driven. Yeah. Because that's what makes it interesting for everyone around the table, including mm. the, the the GM. Um and, and just come back to your point about yeah where the hobby started and yeah big mega dungeons and yeah I totally agree I get that. I, I think for me as 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 someone who's I need my 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 fantasy to be grounded. Mm. And there are very, very few examples in the real world of mega dungeons. You know, you get the occasional kind of buried lost city, that kind of stuff. But it, it's they are very, very rare. And for me, the mega dungeon just doesn't, I it can't, it doesn't satisfy my need for verisimilitude, mm-hmm. Um, which, are, I, which is why I, I kind of struggle a little bit with, with dungeon crawls anyway, because I, I find them. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of look at real world dungeons, and they're like really tiny. <clears throat> you know, they probably know more than five rooms. Um, albeit a dungeon doesn't have to be in the underdark, if you like. But there's for me, there's still a thing where you know, unless you're 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 exploring a cave complex or something, which is likely to be a lot bigger. You know, man-made mega dungeons are, are, are highly unlikely to exist. Um, now you could say, "Well, yes, it's a fantasy world, so yeah, you could put whatever you like in it." What yeah, would I and, say? <laughs> um, and 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 that's absolutely true. But for me personally, th- that breaks my other world immersion. Mm-hmm. I-, I needed to have enough, enough of a link to what is to the real world, or what would be realistic in the real world,
1: mm-hmm.
0: in order in order for me to kind of become immersed in in that that setting um and that's why I, I i struggle sometimes with mega dungeons but yeah but that's just a personal
1: thing for me so coming back to agency mm. i mean i've got my role-playing character see to me like i've got my role-playing character and um depending on what i'm playing but you know if it's me i i would like to spend more time working on my character um and and you know to inhabit the character the character has to become kind of believable and and sort of more real to me yeah so um it'd be really useful for me to think about like some of the things that the character is cares about uh what the character's values are i guess and those kind of things and and the great opportunity for me as a role player is that i get to play something that i am not you know so uh, you know you can muck about with some of this stuff you see you know like maybe you play something that's a little bit of a twist on your own personality, or maybe you play something that's against your personality, or maybe you play something in terms of a role that is just like very different to your life experience. You know, we live in the mm. 21st century and to be honest, we don't have many opportunities for adventure unless we're super rich. So, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of cool things going on there, but for me, you know, it starts with character and then we put the character in the situation and then it's like, this is a situation and how do you want to re- react to that? And, and of course, that's where the agency begins, right? That I get to choose how my character, I will, because I'm going to put myself in a role, how will I uh, react to that? And one of you could argue that it sort of doesn't matter too much whether I get to choose like what comes next because the, the heart of this is like the character responds to the situations that they go through. And maybe in life we don't actually have as much choice as we think we do. Well, that's, a, that's a deep question. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, you know, actually, then I've, I have resolve a situation. I get to, like, choose, well, what, what does a character do next, you know? Um, and, and to me, that's really, really, really important. But, of course, the problem is that this kind of, like, paralysis that comes from choice. Mm. So if you're in a fantasy and created world, I fully get that you might not know even what your options are necessarily, you know, or you might feel that you don't you know you might feel like yeah i I don't actually live in a fantasy you know pseudo medieval world so i don't know um you know when the gm says you're in a village somewhere and you know what do you want to do it's like you tend to fall back on tropes don't you like i'll go to the pub (laughs) because you know what else are you going to do when you're in a village indeed (laughs) so so, I guess, like, if you'd say to the players, well, there's just this whole kind of world out there for you to go and explore, what you want to do? I can get that there would be a sense of, oh, I have no idea, you know. So, yeah, you've got, I guess, you've got to provide players with things, you know, options and ideas and suggestions.
0: Yeah. And I, I, and I guess, I, and I guess, you know, your, your earlier comment about, you know, the players ask you for you know, a bunch of hooks. Yeah. Um, uh, personally, I don't think that robs people of agency too much because I think, it's always saying that, like, you know, here's my, here's my world. Here's, here's a a region that you, you know, you're aware of or not. Here are some locations. You have heard things about these places.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now they might decide to do none of those things, but yeah, I, I guess you, know, a, any character, any real person would need some motivation for doing something. Yeah. And, and a hook provides that motivation. Um, but ultimately it still requires a choice on behalf of the player to say, I'm gonna follow one of those hooks, or actually I'm gonna do something totally different. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean it's just I mean, it's just you something we're all familiar with, right? So, you know, I am living in, in my village and, and this like Blake turns up and, and tells me that one of the possessions I've got is actually this ancient magical item. It's really dangerous in that the bad guys are coming to get it. And uh, it encouraged me to take that item and, like, run away with it, um, try and get somewhere safe with it so the bad guys can't get to it. So if I set up that kind of situation with my player characters in a role-playing game, you know, am I railroading them at that point?
0: Um, well, their choices they can stay mm-hmm. and <laughs> wait for the bad guys to turn up. Um I guess in the real world, people get thrown into situations. Sometimes
1: mm-hmm.
0: situations, you know, sometimes it's okay to say to the characters, "I believe it's okay to say to the characters, this thing has happened to you."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They are totally at liberty how they react to that situation. Mm. I mean, you know, in that particular scenario, they could they could decide to you know drop the uh, the the powerful artifact down the well and, and leave town you could do that and you know if photo had done that <laughs> who knows what would have happened
1: what's interesting is that from a player perspective you know like you probably sit there thinking well if i don't go along with that then i mean you know it's back to abuse gamer syndrome so the ment the mindset becomes well but the gm's like prep something and and so I've got to go along with it, you know, because otherwise, you know, I know like being a GM is a nightmare. So, you know, if I don't go along with it, then I'm sort of spoiling the game, right? But do you think that's that's because
0: too many GMs invest too much time on their their story and their plot, and and you know, we all have that kind of those social filters where you know, we, we don't want to put people out. Well, yeah, you know, if you're British. <laughs> You know, I, I was brought up never to inconvenience anyone, so you know, um, someone, someone does something, and yeah, you know, of course, I'm going to go and do that and be polite and you know, and, and humor them, but um, you know, that's that's on the GM, that's on the GM to say, you know, yeah, I'm going to run this kind of game, and this kind of game, game is going to be a little bit on rails, and are you all okay with that? And, and if they are, great, go with it. But I also think it's on the GM to say, this is a sandbox and I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a whole load of hooks. Um, There is no overarching plot here. Hmm. I'm going to present you with a a region and locations and you can find out stuff about those locations. You can follow it if you want to, or you can do something totally different. I think it's important for the GM to signal what his or her intent is behind the game because I think that then allows the players to buy into whatever that game is, be it on rails or otherwise.
1: I've started, and I mean, I'm about to start a new game. And one of the decisions I've taken is I'm going to like spend some time with the players creating characters. And we're going to do a little sort of like played through guided kind of backstory sort of thing. But the primary purpose there being to try and like characterize the characters By giving them some moral, simple moral situations to sort of the players to answer. And then towards the end of that session, that sort of setup, all I want to say to them is like, so what does your character want? What are your goals? You know, like what are your short term goals, medium term goals, and even long term goals for your character? Because what I'd like to do then is say if the character says, right, my short, first short term goal is I'd like to get like a decent weapon, right? Fine. So we're going to have our first, our first adventure can be set up around, you earning the cash or finding the you know finding access to the cool weapon that you want to own like first couple of sessions whether that can be like a little mini story so we can build something that you know allows you to move in that direction and of course my view as jen is that my job is to put obstacles in the way of that goal and we have now probably an emergent story right uh so that seems reasonable perfectly reasonable to me but my past experience on this, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen when I start this game, but my past experience of this is then players stare at me blankly when I say, so what does your character want? You know, genuinely, I don't think many players are actually used to being asked that question. Mm. Um, in fact, my experience is most of the people I play with uh, generally have gone down the route of my character is completely randomly generated, almost completely randomly generated, and then we're sort of expecting to be, sort of dive into the action. Do you know what I mean? Like the typical kind of d d thing of like my role, my stats, I've tipped my class, I've got my gear. Now what? Um, and actually, I, I sort of want to turn that on its head because to me, that's totally artificial. Um, that, you know, this character pops into existence with like no sort of sense of purpose.
0: Doesn't that come back to stuff you've discussed on on the podcast before about the different kinds, the different kinds of player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, the players who are you know, the tacticians, they're probably less interested in their character's backstory. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I may be wrong. You know, th- those who are into the fantasy are probably much more invested in their character. Um, so I think you know, it, it kind of depends on, on, on the, yeah, the group of players you have at the table, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, Because I guess the risk is, it's another thing. Yeah how how do you cater at one table for many different types of player? And I think that's a real challenge actually. Sometimes, Mm. and and that might also be a reason why pre-written adventures and railroads are so popular, because actually you you don't need to kind of everyone kind of knows what to expect, Mm -hmm. and 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 there's something in it for everyone.
1: Well, there's something in in it. Everyone who's happy to go along with well, indeed the indeed. story, you know, like I yeah, you know, I always get really twitchy about around around the whole sort of topic. Um, and I guess that for me the issue is um about like what I'm looking for in my gaming is I want to get into a world and I want to get into the characters, and as a GM, what I want to provide is people the opportunity for them to inhabit a character and go explore a rich world. So to me, it's like the time that's worth investing is in creating a, a great, I don't really like the phrase sandbox very much, but, you know, for one of a better phrase, you know, a world to go explore, a sandbox, right? That you could go and, and just explore. And the idea of sort of creating a linear story within that, uh, to me, is sort of defeats the object because I want, i want as a player to go explore i don't want to follow the path right so as a GM, you want to provide like open space and lots of things that are going on and by all means you can sort of give people some starting pointers and clues and, and things like, or even give them a, a job to do to start with it usually ends up being a job to do to start with you know um but what's really interesting is just how in my experience, it seems how few players really are comfortable with that. You know, the old school um, kind of community talks an awful lot about agency and sandboxing and all of that. But when I play in those games, I don't necessarily get a great sense of that actually being the experience at the table.
0: And I think um, that point about world building, I think, is is a really important one. Um, So... The, the other thing that yeah the, the industry does is they create settings. Mm. Um, you know, D D has got dozens of them, um, probably, um, and there's certainly yeah, the, the key ones you can think of the Forgotten Realms, Eberron, Dragonlance, you know, yada yada, Dark Sun. Um, and I think the difficulty with playing in in pre-written settings or published settings is that I think it leads GMs and players not wanting to upset the apple cart too much. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I think also, again, this is something I've kind of learned the hard way actually um, is that when you, when you do, when you build your own world, and whether you build a massive world to start with or whether you start small and, and build it out incrementally, you know your world much more deeply. And when you know your world much more deeply, A, you can improvise off of it because you know how your world works. You, you could also add new things to your world much more easily because it's your world. And I think that, that offers a greater possibility for exploration and therefore player agency. Whereas I think published settings kind of constrict that a little bit. And you know, my experience, you know, the, my live table, we play, we play Warhammer, as i mentioned to you before. And you know, that, that has a, a very, very rich setting that's built up over you know for nearly four decades. But I'm increasingly finding it a bit stale mm-hmm. because I feel constrained by by the the pre-written law. Mm. Um, and I have much more fun with my solo game where I'm building my own world mm. because it, I'm at liberty to put in it what I want and I, and I think all of these kind of things that the that the companies that produce well playing games produce, pre-written modules, settings all push players and GMs down this route of don't step outside the box. Don't step off the path.
1: Yeah. I, I, I've i been talking for a long while about prescriptive nature of games. I think that um, it was probably Dr. Crom, um, Sean Punch. He's the line editor for GURPS. I had an interview with him some years ago now. And the light bulb moment for me was when he talked about the difference between prescriptive games and descriptive games and GURPS being the latter. Mm. Um, and, and sort of the intent behind like the generic universal role-playing system, which was always to provide a bunch of tools for GMs to then do what they want with. Um, and that kind of rang a bell with me right back to 1974 kind of D&D because I think like Gygax and uh, certainly was, and Arnott and the others who were involved in that, uh, those early TSR kind of uh, creations were quite surprised that the community started asking for worlds and adventures and and think and obviously that took off and became a whole revenue stream and, and a big part of like how tsr and other companies provided service to their customers but actually i think at the beginning they were like we're good we're giving you a set of rules and a kind of like basic idea of right to run your own fantasy and we're expecting people to go off and do that and it mm-hmm. seems like actually that's not what happened uh for a lot of people it did happen for a lot of people We roll wrong go read alarms the excursions you know there's a as a fanzine you're gonna see lots of world building and people figuring out their own stuff. But um one of the streams that seems to come out of that of that period of the last sort of, 40, 50 years has been the steady march towards you know here's um here's a game in a world with some adventures um and that prescription um for me it like it infects everything because you mentioned that the world and it constraints of like the law of the world l-o-r-e law i presume you mean yes and um and then we've got like the methods that we have of play so if we're trying to generate stories and we do that in a linear fashion and we railroad that's one extreme form of like methodology is to railroad your player through a storyline right so there's that but we also forget that the rules themselves prescribe and set up boundaries you know around what you do if you play dungeons and dragons uh for good or ill, you've you've got a whole set of assumptions you've actually got vansian magic baked into a game system right which is a whole thing in of itself a whole load of assumptions around like what characters do The yeah, I, I mean this conversation i had a long while ago with daniel jones about overworld immersion and one of the things he threw up my mind where was the very concept of an adventurer is a really artificial thing you know somebody yeah. who's whose role is wandering around, doing random stuff, uh, getting paid, basically beating up people, uh, murdering people, stealing stuff. You know, um, you know how believable is that, actually? Um, and
0: you know, they're the good guys, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, of course, the antidote to that became kind of games like Chivalry and Sorcery, where actually you know uh, you, now actually we're going to play a really medieval kind of historical feeling game and uh those kind of guys would just be like you know hunted down and killed um and and we even joke about it we talk about murder hobos and we talk you know and all of that kind of stuff but it all comes from this kind of accumulated mishmash of kind of tropes and traditions that you know have grown up through the hobby all of which restrict our play one way or another at least in my mind.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. This, this idea of <laughs> adventurers uh, and, and that language has been baked into the hobby right from the start almost. And mm. I guess it's part of the reason why I also enjoy low-powered gaming. You know, almost the everyman, mm-hmm. Um who gets thrown into a situation that is extraordinary. Mm. Um, and And maybe they become extraordinary because of their experience through that. Um, But it's a a really interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, you—the historical world had very few people, I think, that you claim to be adventurers.
1: Yeah, it's the thing, isn't it? Like, if you—I mean, if you go to medieval feudalism, then you know you're stuck in your your niche, right? Go before that you're in a situation where to survive, you need to be part of community and to be part of community, you need to be trusted and you can't have thieves, murderers and those kinds of people in a community that needs to survive. You know, and the further back you go in time, the more extreme that becomes that actually smaller groups needing to survive, needing each other and needing trust. So um, I think, you know, again, coming back to Daniel Jones's comments about the, first step in in setting up a really interesting campaign from his perspective he's very low power very low magic very, you know very um well you know very uh primeval fantasy is what he calls it but his thing is like you set up characters in a in a village or a community and you set up the everyday experience and then you destroy it in some way you you force them out of that community to survive in you know through some kind of cataclysmic event that is, at least to their mind, a cataclysmic, you know. I guess yeah. getting raided, getting raided by like violent vagabonds or something, you destroy your village and burn it, through. you know, Conan esque, uh, you know, hear the lamentations of the women kind of moment, right? And then suddenly, what is it that these characters are going to do? Do they die there and then, or do they like stand up and they, and they fight back against evil and chaos, you know, that kind of thing? And that can yeah. be fun and interesting. And I think um, that that then throws agency down in front of the player and says, what are you going to do then? Right. Yeah. But, but that's not most of what we play. Uh, No,
0: it's not. And, and you, one could argue, although I said the point before about, you know, extraordinary thing, extraordinary things happen to ordinary people sometimes by the GM doing that. You, you do immediately rob them of some agency because you've, you've just told them that their village has been destroyed and they've been, or they're being attacked by a, barbarian
1: horde or whatever it is and um
0: they they, they have no choice about that
1: (laughs) yeah and this is the thing isn't it like um maybe that's what we need to do maybe we have to sort of throw our players on their uppers a bit to use an old londonism um you know really throw them on their back heels put them in a situation that is really ridiculously difficult to resolve let them resolve it and then after that it becomes a case of like now what do you want to do yeah how do you want to respond Um, So if my village has been destroyed by like a huge, you know, like a a raiding bunch, I don't know, for want of a better trope, a bunch of orcs have just toasted our village and killed everybody. My family has been killed, my you know, we've been murdered. And the initial scene is us coming back to that situation um, and maybe kind of catching the tail end of it or whatever, or maybe we're just like dealing with the aftermath of that and that's the first situation. And then, so what do you want to do now? And certain... I imagine that certain characters will want vengeance. Certain characters will be like try and rebuild, you know, and then you kind of deal with the consequences. Some characters, I guess, will be like run to the hills. I don't know. Um, But the issue is always going to come back to the magic question of role-playing games, which is, so what do you want to do?
0: Yep, absolutely. It's part of the reason why in in my solo game, I put my players in a shipwreck. Exactly that kind of thing. Something happened to them. Mm-hmm. And they 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 get washed up on a beach far from home, but they don't know anyone. They don't know any, anywhere. Mm-hmm. It forced them, although like the players yeah. with me, to 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 make a choice and do something. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's maybe you're right. Maybe that's that's the only real way to kind of throw the ordinary into the extraordinary. Um. Because you know the the old adage of you know, that that kind of you know, you're in a pub and you know there's a dark stranger in the corner kind of thing, it, it, I find that really problematic.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about it where we got to in our conversation is that it's kind of like talking about what agency. Is. So like, what is actually railroading, and and I think Justin Alexander is the most helpful with this in that. For him, it is where a GM takes away the ability of the players to do what they choose to do. I think that's kind of broadly what it boils down to. And we can do that in lots of different ways. We can do it very directly, you know, um, where we say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, and I've had GMs <laughs> do that, I've, you know, in the past. You know, you, you want to do something and, and they're like, no, you can't do that. Uh, or the GM tries to be a bit more subtle and will make you roll for it and you're going to fail no matter what you know and then sometimes there's the gm like you say like you want to go to a place and what they do is they magically beam you to wherever it is they want you to go anyway you know they do the the quantum um location thing where whichever room i take i end up in the same place whichever door i take you know whichever path i go down i end up where they want me to be next yeah And I kind of hope you won't notice. Um, It's what I think is termed illusionism, where there's an illusion of agency, but actually there isn't because you're just going down this sort of pathway. Um, So the issue, you know, for me, it's like, I don't think the way we set up a game and where we start a game is necessarily like in that path. We set up, the GM always has complete control over the first scene and the setup. And they can yeah. they can set they will and can set that up however they wish. Um the gem also has complete power to have any intervention enter into the, the players lives, right? The characters' lives, sorry. Um, you know, so I can have a meteor hit the hit the ground near them, you know, and or I can have dragons turn up, I can have you know, because this is I mean, otherwise, you know, what's the point? Like, I I need to be able as a GM to create situations or put them under pressure or give them mm. challenges. So, uh, in theory, I can throw anything I like at them. You know, um, I remember back way back uh, a couple of years ago, I started playing first other really other world immersive game where we were like the rules were all behind the screen. Mm. Um, I had the the thought that the characters were part of Attack by a dragon and is burned to the ground and destroyed, and it was great and it was really immersive for the players, and they were like really like whoa kind of <laughs> you know wow what's going on here and there was nowhere they could confront that dragon f- face you know face to face straight up front you know as like these everyman kind of characters you know and they knew that and it became kind of like can we get refugees out and can we kind of get away and and you know the short-lived is the game was because I bottled it um it was really deep and rich. Mm. was I railroading them no because the next thing was like what do you want to do and whatever they wanted to do we kind of went with that so they started to you know they started to act in different ways and my job was to adjudicate that through and, and see where it took us yeah. um, and but- so for me the essence of it is that you know like you put the characters in difficult situations and it's down to the players to decide how they're going to to deal with those situations and then what do they do next Where where do they want to go I think one of the difficulties I've always found is in making sure there are plenty of options apparent, you know, to the players. Mm. So it doesn't mm. feel too linear. Um, that Actually, I don't have a linear path, but it might look like I do because, you know, that, I don't know, that situation I talked about, there was a two, there's two roads out of town. So they took one of them or the other one. They could, of course, strike out over ground, open ground, and do in any direction they want to, but there's a tendency to follow the road because that's safer, isn't it? Um, You know, and it kind of makes sense to some degree, you know. Um, I think it's really got to be kind of aware as Gem that whatever options you offer or paths, if you like, you offer out of the situation, they're likely to be things that players will use it's that thing of what should I do? The question is usually in the mind of the player is what should I do? What should I do? What's the right thing to do here? What, what? And actually we don't often ask, ask the question of what could I do in this yeah. situation, yeah. which opens up a myriad of possibilities, you know, yeah. and then kind of widens that if that makes any sense. but Yeah, no, totally. I, I, and and yeah,
0: I guess, yeah, the, you, your point there about you, you don't want to give that illusion of agency. So you, you might prepare, you know, X number of, of locations and, mm. and and places or whatever. Y- y- you know, and if they go if they say we want to go east rather than west, you you, you can't understand, well, this is the only thing I've got prepared, so I'm gonna put that in their way. Mm. There there has to be something genuinely different between those choices. Mm. Um in a traditional game, that's the way it is, you know. Like... yeah, yeah. Now you, you know, one could argue that those who 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 prescribe to the you know, illusionary agency um the players wouldn't know any different mm. um and that is that is true To a point, but i think i think as a gm i'd be cheating myself mm-hmm. um because actually isn't isn't the thing and i totally agree you know the role, the role of the gm is to put challenge and obstacles in the way to make whatever the players are doing in make it interesting for them make mm. it something to overcome um But actually, as as a GM, part of my enjoyment is actually seeing what the players are going to do and where they're Mm going to go, and and for that being a surprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think part of it is that sometimes GMs get too hung up on on needing to prep everything. Mm -hmm. And I think the key is prepping enough that when the players take the agency that's offered to them, you can satisfy that agency in a way that's true mm. and, and not an illusion.
1: I also think it kind of comes down to like this question about obstacle creating, because I've, I've talked about this a bit today, but I'm not entirely sure that's actually the role of the GM. So let me just hear me out here, right? So I think the role of the GM is to adjudicate the situations based on yeah. what the players choose to do. I think that's the primary role. Yeah, And then within that, you've got obviously... Set- describe and set up like, the scene, set the scene for players, and then I offer them a magic question, what do you want to do? And then they decide what they're going to do, and you adjudicate it. Now, when I played, a long while ago now, it seems like forever ago, I tried playing um, Dungeons & Dragons BX, which is essentially old-school essentials these days. We were playing with it. Back then it was BX Essentials, in Dolmenwood, which is um, this fantastic kind of, well, woodland that was created um, for that game, and the great thing about what Dolmenwood is, is a hex crawl. It said, or a hex, it could be a hex crawl, I suppose. Um, it wasn't entirely played in that way by us, but basically, what I had is every session, what I would do is the players would decide what they were going to do. They were maybe journeying through Dolmenwood. I remember early on they were they were in a particular there's a settlement they sort of start in. They had some encounters. They got picked up a a job to go to another place. So they're journeying down the road, and what I was doing, GM, is rolling random encounters, and then having those encounters kind of on. They they had those things happen on the road. And what was wonderful about that particular setting, resource material, which Gavin Norman has created, um, is that it doesn't just have monsters. It has also, you know, like all sorts of like traveling pilgrims on the road, or you know some lost old hag kind of like sitting by the road what's going on there or you know other and strangeness generally and um what i found in that particular experience was that it was fun for me to have a number of things sort of i hadn't necessarily planned but had sort of been generated and you'd weave them in to the the ongoing kind of um action of the game as it were and then what do the players do about those things um and it was one of the more enjoyable games I've run, simply from the point of view of it got very deep into the world of that, that particular woodland area. We discovered and uncovered all sorts of things and mysteries that are in there, part of which was in the material, and much of which I improvised or came up with you know, through play. But the most interesting thing was as GM, like session by session, I really wasn't entirely sure what was going to be happening at all, simply because of those random elements that are being thrown up. Now this brings me back to like talking to you, really interesting, because you're a big solo player, and so obviously random elements popping up is a big part of that play, um, play style and methodology. But my feeling is that maybe it isn't about us as GM having those their responsibility to create all those challenges you know that actually that we could play in such a way where it isn't prescribed even by me necessarily what what will be happening you know that actually maybe we use some different tools we can yeah. randomize some of that we can generate ideas we can um essentially spice it up by making the gm's role one of adjudicating those things as well you know adjudicating mm-hmm. the, the the emergent kind of elements within the world i don't know what you make of that and i don't makes any sense but to me it seems like that helps preserve the player's agency because i'm not like i've not now got an agenda as a gm yeah I,
0: it, it, it makes total sense and you know and as you say as a as a big solo player i rely a lot on on randomness to hmm. to generate what's going to happen and, and, and what what obstacles and challenges crop up for the for, for the party I, I think I think it comes back to to a couple of things so the, the players determining their goal yeah. um, and also in, in a role playing game where the story is emergent and I will use the word story because a tale is told through a, the emergent play
1: mm-hmm.
0: the reason why stories are compelling or not, is normally due to the level of conflict that's generated. And be that there's, there's traditional three types of conflict, yeah, the man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self. Self. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Thank right? you. Yeah. Um <laughs> and, and I think where the GM be it albeit interpreting random randomly generated uh, encounters or or, or places, or even if the GM has has designed something, I think the GM does have part of a job to try to determine what that conflict might be.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, if it's man versus self, then I think the players generate that. I think if it's man versus man, then the GM generates that and if it's man versus nature I think the GM generates that albeit those latter two will be could be done procedurally through tables randomness Etc but I think there is a role for the GM to, to to determine certain types of conflict in order to make the game have some interesting meaning mm. um for the players to then feel some type type of accomplishment when they've actually achieved their goal otherwise it's kind of like yeah if my goal is just to walk down the road, that's not very interesting. Mm. If if my goal is to, you know, find out what happened to my parents, that's interesting. And there will be some kind of conflict along the way that will let then when I find out the answer to that, make that that attainment of goal all the
1: more rewarding. And it's got me thinking about quite a few things because my conversation with John Four um which will have aired before this conversation, which is great. Um, but, it, you know, let's imagine, like, I don't know, the, one of the the things that we were talking about is a gem offering uh, things that the players could go, you know, get involved in. So let's about there's a sword of ages or something. Let's create a magic item, right? And, and John would say, like, place the sword of ages in your world somewhere. That's your end point, right? Now, you've got to answer the first question you've got to answer is, why has the sword of ages not been discovered already? so like question number one challenge number one the entry point into that particular uh that particular adventure arc for for him is you know like answering that question so how do the players hear about it why is that that they that nobody has got those sort of ages you know answer that question that will set you up the beginning of your story up and then you're definitely going to want something at the end that's going to make that uh, a climactic challenge to get to the blade. So whether that is the big bad they have to kill, who uses it, or whether that's the, you know, it's in the chamber behind, but there's some kind of guardian, or whether that's there's a deadly trap that they have to overcome or some, you know, whatever it is, but there's something that stops them from getting it. And there's a high crisis point of, of action. You know, you definitely need that. And you obviously need the end point where they get the sword, right? Or not die trying um and then what he's suggesting is a couple of things that are really worth slotting in in the way that give you all the kind of story beats is one of them is a key role play scene a role-playing scene a scene an interaction scene of some kind where they either get help or there's a barrier or there's some clues to gather or whatever that involves interacting with with other characters in the world npcs in the world and another one is some kind of setback that happens along the way that kind of drains resources or otherwise delays them or distracts them you know what i mean now to me it seems perfectly reasonable to set up those kinds of challenges to a goal like that no problem you know and it also makes sense to me that if a player says to me my character is like a player it's, i have not created the sort of ages but a player says to me there's this sort of ages that my character's heard about and i want to find it then to me it's like okay, let's put that in the world then and <laughs> let's start creating the barriers to that as well. That's another valid way of, of setting up a goal. But this is, for me, that's like tier three agency. They have just taken control. They have just gone, oh, my character wants the sword of ages or my character wants to become the king of the land or my my character wants to find true love. Whatever there is, right? But as soon as they say, my character wants to do X, for me, that's that's tier three agency. And the other thought that kind of sprung off talking about agency is this idea of the GM having a separate agenda. And of course those two words are related, right? Mm. So does the player really want to take agency or is the player wanting to sort of follow the GM's agenda? You know, that's kind of like those, uh, to me, that feels like your choices. Um, It's probably not that binary, but you know, it is an interesting thing of like, if I've, when I played the Dragonlance Chronicles, when I played Dragonlance Ventures in DL1 through 12, where it was back in 1986 or whatever it was, we started those. They were like railroads. You know, like you are going to go to the, the city of Zaxaroth. You're going to go there and you're going to have a confrontation with the Black Dragon. You know, and it doesn't matter really what else you did. You could do all you like all the way around it, but you just wander around aimlessly until you go there. And then you interact with, you know, that adventure and you, you do those things. But the difference there was this is the first time we came across the idea that the GM has an agenda, right? That the first step in this journey is you're going to go there and have this confrontation with the dragon. And that's what you're going to do. um. And the degree to which the GM manipulates things to get you there. You know, that's that's the thing we're talking about, right? Now, if yeah. a player turns around and says, I want to go to the ancient city of Zaxaroth and confront, I've heard there's a black dragon there. That's a different thing to me. Mm. You know, like if I've said there's this ancient city over there, you know, and, and sort of left it hanging. And then the players get curious about the ancient city and then they find out somewhere else that they, they think there's a dragon living there. And then they think there may be treasured there and they get all curious. And they want to go. That's a wholly different thing, where you know I've I've seeded the world with interesting stuff, and now my players are choosing to go to Zach Zarath and a confrontation mm-hmm. with dragon. Do you get that? I I don't know if that's making sense.
0: No, no, I I do. Uh, I'm, I had a vice smile on my face when you were discussing you were describing that because uh, the worst thing about those those dragon adventures was <laughs> there was a novel that told you all about it. <laughs> mm. So you know, you had what well, you? Know, Hundreds of players just you know, play it like the you know, the party in the in the book, um, which yeah, I really, and that's really... the thing you had to play the
1: characters you were supposed to play the yeah. characters in yeah. the books as
0: well <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Funny enough, I, I I I read those books when I was I don't know fourteen or something, and um, I I got a Kindle edition of of the first one, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, mm-hmm. uh, a few months back. So I I'll, Oh, I'll, I'll read it. Nostalgia, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's terrible. It is. Oh my goodness, it's just one of the worst novels. I I couldn't finish it. I just thought, this is awful.
1: I had a similar experience during the COVID period. Um, So I loved those books when I was a kid, really, really loved them and devoured them. And, and, you know, as a role player, early role player. But yeah, during the lockdown, I tried reading it because I've got the three set originals, you know. And yeah, same thing. I kind of like, it was a sort of warm, tingly starting point. And then as I got on, I was just like, this is not great yeah yeah
0: I, I remember I I gave my original books back to a to a charity shop probably mm-hmm. in the early 2000s and they went rereading it recently I remember why I did that <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway uh, back to your, your your question um yeah it do, it does make sense um and and I think I I think it comes back to that 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 original point I, I made right at the start of our conversation which is you know i think there's probably very few players who will take the level of agency where they say i've heard about the so- the sword of ages sorry i yeah. think- <laughs> it has to be said in that voice isn't it Yes, yeah. I- i've heard about the sword of ages and i want it for myself and um and and the GM goes, great, great, and I'll put that in my world. I, I think that's a very rare occurrence. I mean, I've never come across that with, with any player I've ever played with. Um and I think it comes back to the fact that players are conditioned to look to the GM for the mm. starting point. Um and almost the you know, the the goal, if you like.
1: By the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you know, no. like most of the time, I think it's just on the GM to create those kind of things. And I think yeah. John Fall is probably right when he talks about seeding your world with loads of those and then setting up barriers to those things. It's probably a really sensible thing to do. Um yeah. You know, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what I'm trying to say is, like, ultimately, as a player, you could go to your GM and and say, totally. you know, I want to go on a quest for a, mate, a mighty item. Do you know what I mean? And, um and and to me as GM, I think I would want to find a way of making it I might put my own spin on it, you know. Yeah. But, um and, and I think that's
0: important because y- you'd want you'd want it to fit in your game world. So if you're if you're if you're playing in a you know really low magic you know low magic item mm-hmm. setting, you probably don't want you know the sword of Ages. <laughs> no,
1: well it becomes it becomes Excalibur, clearly, isn't it? And, <laughs> well in- well indeed. Like, uh, and
0: so you would want to probably tailor what that is to make it yeah. thematic with your game world.
1: And um, involve a watery tart. <laughs> Sorry, some on pie Python reference for anyone who doesn't really I'm not disparaging water nymphs. Okay. <laughs>
0: um so yeah, yeah, so I, I think it's a really interesting concept and I you know, personally as a GM I'd really welcome that. Um I'm not. Maybe I'll suggest that to my players. If you have a good idea about something you want your players to do, then
1: you say. Yeah, but I do think like um, where I'm going to experiment at the moment is is like at the beginning, like well, your short term goals, you know, like even just tell me like over the next few sessions, what do you want your character, what does your character want, um, you know, and and I think a lot of the time that might come down to, and if you're a low fantasy, low magic, low powered game, it might come down to basically equipment things. You know, I want, and you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, but I, I think like saying to the players. What does your character want is a really interesting question that isn't often asked. You know, there's yeah. an assumption of my character doesn't really want anything. Tell me what my character wants.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I I, <clears throat> I, I totally agree, and I think, I think partly it's the GM's responsibility to almost kind of open that up mm. and and say to the to the table. Do you know what? I'm I'm not going to set the default goals. I want you to do that, um, and you know, let your imaginations fly. I, I think there's something as well about um, in in you know, ancient people in the real world would have had their myths and their legends and their stories. You know, it's that that is that oral tradition of mm-hmm. of, of, of early civilizations, um, which civilization is probably a stronger word, but you know, early early human settlements and mm-hmm. and, and tribes and and, and and clans or whatever. You know, that's where, you know, the st- stories like Beowulf come from and, and you know and you know, and the myths and legends of dragons because you know people probably found dinosaur skulls or whatever. And I, I think what could be interesting would be for the GM to kind of almost say here here are some common myths and legends that you you know about from your 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 your, your 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 familial circle or your your tribe or whatever these are the things that you talk about about around the fire because actually that might spark some imagination about well i don't want to find out whether any of those things are true or maybe maybe there's something there that that's interesting for me and then let the player then develop that further so that you're not gonna give them such a such a blank canvas that that they just don't know where to start.
1: Yeah.
0: But actually giving them a a a, a myth framework also sets the tone of the world. So that when they come along and say, I want the sword of ages, but actually nothing like that exists in their reference model of their of, of the character's social um network yeah yeah their social uh uh mythology mm-hmm. then then you know that's when you know they know some boundaries around what
1: mm.
0: what's going to work in the game world or what isn't because there's no point someone saying, oh with well, the sword of ages if 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 they've never seen a sword before
1: mm. i think there's a couple of things i you know for me that's like what ring did for me back in 1980 um so when i started the hobby uh, you know, the, the the game that really bit my imagination hard was RuneQuest. You know, second edition, Uh Garantha is a mythic world, and and it's a sort of Bronze Age, primitive mm-hmm. kind of cultural and very richly mythological world. And I think that's always been like what what drew me into this. So I am absolutely with you on that. You know, and and then from that kind of arises the. I do think there's a sort of a slight elephant in the room as well when it comes to like playing role-playing games and um how do I explain this one? it's it it's the the thing that does the player really want yeah does they really 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 want to sort of take charge of their character actually? Um, I've played with plenty of players who want to fight things I've played with plenty of players who want to um, you know get treasure and loot and things um, I've played with plenty of players who just want to roll dice and hang around with their mates I've played with plenty of players who want to um, even just sit at the table really you know like they're totally social sit at the table and take part here and there How many players want what we're talking about, which is to really inherit their character and and to really, you know, fantasize? um, Because that's what we're talking about.
0: I I think that's a very uh, poignant point Um, because I've never come across any other player that wants the level of otherworld emotion that I want. Other than you, but we haven't played. We haven't played together. But um, and we should do that. (laughs) We should. We should. Um. Yeah. uh, Every player I've ever played with has has always wanted to kind of go on quests, kill the big bad, and yeah. And for them, it's about it's about the adventure.
1: Um. Mm. Yeah, and the fashion today is to to have the story, right? To and it, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not to do because I'm a big fan of Monty Cook and and um everything that he does in a lot of ways, uh, I think it's fantastic. But his whole like role-playing games are about telling stories. And actually they're about telling heroic stories, and they're about telling larger than life, cinematic heroic stories, really you know, where everybody has amazing abilities and gets to sort of like be their hero and do amazing stuff and basically always win. Um, Mm. And, you know, again, it's an approach to play that actually doesn't really want that much agency. In the end, you want to go from scene to scene, fight to challenge to fight, you know, another fight and a bit of a challenge and then kind of come out on top. Um and and really, what's interesting is that the story that's told um along the way is really you know it's fine and the degree to which I really inhabit my character, playing role, um and get to decide what the adventure is going to be, you know maybe yeah. maybe that isn't what people want. It's again, so back to the original question: How much agency do players really want? Uh, I'm, my, I'm my sense is. I'm not sure that they do. <laughs> but, um, I mean, yeah. And that was kind of
0: where I was coming from with my question. Um, I, I, it's it's funny, you know, I, I was out and about with my family today and um, we went to a, a nice kind of it's like a country park and it had Heathland area and woods and there was actually a ruined castle there and stuff. But um, I remember I said to my son and he's 10 years old and I've just started introducing him to role-playing games. And I said, to him, when I, when I was your age, um, whenever I got to go to the, to the woods of the forest, I would I would imagine myself in, that I was in a fantasy world, and it wasn't because I, as a child, I wanted to be on adventures, but I wanted to inhabit a fantasy world. Um, I, I wanted to be transported to another place and another time and another reality. And I still long for that. When I when I go for a walk in the woods or I, I go across Dartmoor, I imagine myself in a fantasy world, in, an, in, in another world, because I'm trying to immerse myself in that place and in that fantasy. And it's not about what monsters I can fight. It's just about being there and being somewhere, escaping the modern world, which is probably why I don't particularly go for modern... RPGs, yeah, you know, like you know, modern setting RPGs. I, I, my my default is is fantasy because I want to escape everything which is so claustrophobic about modern life by having that other world emotion immersion. And for me, you know, my characters walking across, you know, a moorland or through a forest. That's where I get my sense of 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 immersion and inner calm. And trans- being transported away somewhere else, and you're quite right. Most of the people you play with, they just they just want to go and kill the monster. And there's nothing wrong with killing the monster. Yeah, the monster can make it exciting and 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 offer something something else. But for me, be being in the the, the, the game world, being in the setting, that's that's what's interesting for me. That's exploring that is. It's fascinating, and, and, but I don't think most players want that. I think for most players, the setting is almost a kind of peripheral thing that just kind of, you know, it, their immediate thing is given some context.
1: Yeah, I I remember reading um, uh, Monty Cook's Your Best Game Ever, which is uh, a sort of coffee table book about role-playing games and how to play them, and you're 160 pages into the book before we mention setting. Yeah. And then it's setting, it's not world. And I use the word distinctively because setting is like the backdrop to the story. Mm. Um, but world is like actually this thing in it itself. Um, what uh, some might say is is like another character in of itself, um, which is an interesting concept as well. But this is why I'm a GM, you know, is because I want to explore the worlds and then create and build them um you know because that that's an element of exploration you know i've spent the last week preparing for a game with players on saturday night we're going to play in a version of glorantha kind of part of it i'm just taking the map and the and the some of the setting material and then i'm going to like riff off that yeah and i said to them you know don't get yourself immersed in the Glorantha law because i'm gonna like my my Glorantha will vary greatly um, because I want to loosen an uh, earlier comment you made about like loosening up all of that is really, really important. But what's fascinating, what's been really exciting as a GM is is exactly the whole thing of exploring what's there in the written material and imagining that and then sort of immersing myself steadily into that small part of the world that we've chosen to start in and prepared to present that. Um but again, I have the question of whether my players are actually that interested in that, you know. Um these guys are pretty good, they're pretty experienced gamers and they are willing to come and experiment with me which is why they choose to game with me I think as much as anything but and so you know I don't want to insult them here but you know we've got to ask that question like I said it's the elephant in the room right Is like actually if I ran a session where we were exploring some kind of remote location and it was heavily descriptive and you know would that be interesting to them you know because to me that that's interesting to a very large degree you know and then obviously you'd have some kind of something happen because otherwise it would be very dull but um but you know when i'm like i'm like you what my wife and i were out recently visiting woolerton park in nottingham and there's a lake there and there's a little pathway that goes around the lake and within and by the pathway there's this like stump of a tree that's been like surrounded and and this particular Like May, late May morning, surrounded by these big blue flowering trees, and it's kind of an open space. And there'd been some trees have been cut and chopped into logs. Whole thing looked like some kind of grove. And my wife turns to me, we're taking photos of it, and she says to me, "She goes, something lives here, doesn't it?" And and we were both in that conceit of, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and then you look at the stump, the, the tree it had like a hole where it had rotted away. So like, there's a door. I want to go through the door. Um yeah. that's how my mind works. That's that's the kind of fantasy, you know, I inhabit daily. Like when well, I see these things in the world around me and I want to imagine that they they are like little little windows on well, I suppose the ancient Nordic peoples and and the Celts and stuff saw as like gateways to fairy or gateways yeah, yeah. to the to the Elven lands, you know, whatever. Um, and that's that's the opportunity for me in gaming. Um, and then from all of that, then like, what do you want to do when you get into that fantastic place? What do you, what do you want to do? What do you want to explore? What do you want to? Who do you want to go and see? To me, they're all really important questions. But I'm not entirely convinced that they are for the players at my table
0: yeah yeah and and i think i feel the same about the players at my table and they're a great bunch and yeah i I really enjoy playing with them i'm pretty certain i know that what i need from a game was a big part of the reason why i started playing solo Mm. because it was the only way i could i could scratch that itch um and, and satisfy that need I have to explore and immerse myself in the game world as much as the adventure quotation marks that that, that I go on with my mm. characters. Um, so
1: yeah, yeah I'm totally agree. conscious mm. the time. But I do have like a tiny little anecdote. Recently I got invited into a game and I'm not gonna say anything more about it other than there was a sort of setup of the game and I was invited to create a character for this game. And then I start I asked a question of the group in GM about like, oh the, the situation being set up, you know, we're going to some mission or do something or other. And and I kind of speculated about oh, what's really going on there? Because, you know, it seems like a really odd mission. And what happened is my mind, I had started to think about that as a real place with real situation and a real world. And I was given the whole sort of setting and background. I was kind of curious as to why we would be doing the particular thing we'd be doing. That seems like super risky and, you know, and all sorts of other questions right? So I asked these questions and it became really apparent to me very quickly that I was probably pissing off the GM because on one level, I think it probably came off as me sort of challenging their creativity. You know, what I mean, like like yeah. whether it made sense. And I wasn't doing that. I was just like, actually, I was doing the opposite. I was trying to suggest that maybe there was kind of cool things that are going on here. And my, you know, my mind is always like pondering about like what's going on behind all of that. You know, mm-hmm. but I actually got the sense by the way in which players in the gm responded to those questions of oh, are you having a laugh um but, but actually nobody really cared what they wanted to do is they wanted to go to a location do the mission yeah um and nobody gave a shit about really about why that situation was the way it is is yeah. my impression that could be good. yeah they just wanted to kill monsters yeah and, and, and of course there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> but i suddenly realized just how different i am as a player Mm. you know, like that I genuinely i mean you know at of times I've sat at the tables like you know bored, basically, mm. you know, um because to me it's like oh, another fight scene, okay <laughs> um yeah. and yeah. and don't get me wrong, the tactical part of me, the war gamer part of me really get into that if that's what we're gonna do, and I will but I'm not role playing at that point I am really skirmish war gaming, you know what I mean, yeah, yeah um gaming the system, you know, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I just genuinely am at now at the point of wondering whether the particular branch of role-playing game that I'm wanting to play is a really minority thing. And so I guess, like, in one way, by talking about this, the the hope is that there might be listeners out there who suddenly go, me too. <laughs> uh, because if we could gather those people together around a table, wow, you know. Um, that would be uh, that
0: would be pretty powerful, wouldn't it? Yeah.
1: Anyway, Simon, thanks very much for your time. It's been like way longer than planned. So indeed, appreciate it.
0: No worries at all. Good to speak to you, Jay.
1: Big thank you once again to Simon from Legend of the Bones for coming and sharing his thoughts. I'll stick a link to his podcast in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplay rescue. Once again, thanks to all the RolePlay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash RPG Rescue. Thank you also to John from Tale of the Manticore podcast for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. But most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.